Well, I have a friend who wrote in a blog post about his efforts to be a good person, and he confessed frustration with how little progress he's made. He said, I'm more patient, kind, and gracious than I used to be, but inside I'm a cauldron of evil. That's pretty strong words. And he described how as he'd grown older, he'd become more aware, uncovering layers of mixed motives. He said, selfishness mingled with the good. So outwardly, he said, I'm a better person, but inwardly, I have this nagging suspicion that I have a long way to go. Now, even though he describes himself as a cauldron of evil, I just want to just uh, uh, don't want to give you the wrong impression because this is not a bad man. He's uh, married to his wife uh, for a loving husband, raised great kids. He's useful in his church and community. In his company, he's done well. He's a senior vice president. And so we're not talking about an axe murderer or a Wall Street banker or a U.S. senator. He's a much better than average guy. But what he describes is having a constant low-level awareness of guilt. Now, some of you might say, well, it sounds like he kind of has an overactive conscience, and maybe he ought to relax a little bit and kick back and enjoy life. Quit beating up on himself so much. But he said that's part of the problem. He's far too content to muddle along when he knows that he's not all that he should be. Now, the persistence of guilt has surprised many in the 21st century. Frederick Nietzsche predicted that if we got rid of the idea of God, we'd also be able to get rid of the idea of guilt. But that's not happened. In fact, it's been the opposite. With moral responsibility comes the sense of moral guilt. So living in a world with climate change and world hunger and ethnic war and racism and economic inequality makes us feel responsible and guilty at the same time. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've experienced this. You get an email or maybe something in the mail or maybe you are late up at night and watching television and you see an appeal from a humanitarian agency for aid. And it's an urgent need. Periodically, you may even send a little money, but um, knowing that you could do so much more. If I were just a bit generous, you say, maybe I could meet the needs of dozens of children instantly. But when I see those kinds of things, I wonder, you know, even my little bit of generosity, is that really enough? In fact, how much would be enough? If every time I saw one of those appeals, I wrote a check for $1,000, I'd do it knowing that I could do even more than that. So all of us could do more could do more to reduce our carbon footprint, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, or to employ the unemployed. So there's no end to the list of things that we can feel guilty about. What complicates it is that many of these problems are really almost unsolvable. Recently, I went to a seminar about the international refugee crisis. And I don't know if you know this, but there are 65 million forcibly displaced persons in the world today. 65 million. That's more than the population of New York and California. That's as if the whole population of Great Britain were suddenly living in tents and refugee camps dependent on NGOs and foreign aid. Now, some argue that we ought to open up borders and grant refugees asylum in other countries. But the vast majority, and maybe we ought to do that as well, but the vast majority, 90-plus percent of these folks, they don't want to go to another country. They just want to go home. But they can't because of persecution, war, or famine. It's such an intractable problem that one of the presenters that day said, if you can figure this one out, you will win the Nobel Peace Prize. And still we see pictures and read statistics, and we're quickly trapped in a sense of collective guilt. And then there's the problem of historical guilt, of slavery, of Japanese internment camps, of forced migration of Native Americans. The past that was once buried isn't buried anymore, and we're struggling to come to terms with it. Some point fingers and the rest of us wonder what to do about righting past wrongs. 
Nobody, it seems, is innocent. So what do we do? And how much guilt is enough? And how can we feel it right with the world again? But it's not just global problems and historical embarrassments. It's the stuff that we do personally that also gets us as well. At the core, we have a propensity to mess things up. Sometimes we just know it because we've blown something. And sometimes when we've blown it, we've blown it big. Even children know this. I remember all the way back in third grade, for some reason I didn't like one of my classmates, so I wrote something nasty about him in one of my notebooks. Fortunately, he didn't find it, but maybe unfortunately even more, my dad was the one that found it. And uh, very forcefully, he helped me understand how hurtful what I'd written was. And I got it. I felt bad. I felt horrible. Then in fourth grade, we had a new student in our class, and he didn't fit in very well. So someone came up with the nickname, Carp. It stuck. And to my everlasting shame, I used it more than once. And that was just childhood. You know, as we get older, our capacity for wrongdoing grows, and there are more opportunities for coloring outside the lines. And if you're like me, well, I've done my share of coloring, gossip and greed and lust. I've said before here that if you could see what sometimes passes through my mind, you probably wouldn't want to come to church anymore. But I rest assured by knowing that if I could see what's in your minds, you wouldn't want to show up here either. (laughs) So the truth is, is that we're all in this together. Sometimes we make the mental list of all the good things we've done, the nice things we've said, the way we've sponsored a child or recycled. And if we're really disciplined sort, we can do more than the average bear and be more successful than others. But deep down... We know that we should be doing more or less, depending on what it is. For many, this all sounds way too confining. So in an effort to be free, you just sort of dispense with any kind of standards at all. So in an effort to be free, we reject moral standards, do what we want. And then, in the words of the immortal Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? The problem is, is that try as we may, we can never live up to whatever standard we might adopt. And if we reject standards, we find ourselves trapped by the very things we thought would make us free. So whether it's guilt and shame or a combination of regret and remorse, deep down, we know that things aren't quite right. Unless we're sociopaths and we lack any sort of conscience, we're united by our sense of guilt, whether collective or individual. And I know what you're thinking about now. You're thinking, I came to an Easter Sunday morning service. I didn't come, you know, to have be lectured at or beat up or be reminded of all my failures. And so I agree. It's not my goal here to leave you feeling depressed. In fact, I want to do the opposite. But sometimes we need to see the bad news in order to be able to understand and appreciate the good. So I want to tell you a story. It's the Easter story, and so I know some of you have heard it before, but I want to tell you through the lens of three different people who experienced that first Easter Sunday morning. To do that, I want to read from John, who was one of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection and how he tells the story. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Here's how John writes. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, by the way, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, but we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
As she wept, she bent over to look at the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. She told them that he, what he had said, that he'd said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. I want to first talk about the second person that in this story saw Jesus, and that's Peter. Uh, but to tell you his story, I need to back up just a little bit to just a day earlier. Jesus had told his disciples that um, the time had come for his arrest, his trial, and crucifixion. And then he said to his disciples, when that happens, you will all desert me. And Peter was indignant. He said, you will all, not me, I'll never desert you. And then Jesus said something that deeply offended him. He said, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. No, I won't, Peter said. I'm ready to die for you. But some of you know that Jesus was right. Three times in a space of less than just maybe two hours, Peter denied everything about Jesus, not even knowing him. So when the rooster crowed early the next morning, he remembered what Jesus said, and we're told he went out and wept bitterly. And the news only got worse because by three in the afternoon on Friday, Jesus was dead, crucified on a cross between two common criminals. By the time Peter heard the news, the guilt came rushing in. He didn't know what to do. He was depressed. He became overwhelmed by a feeling of hopelessness. That is where Peter was before Easter Sunday morning. The second person I want to mention is actually someone we haven't read about yet. He comes later in the story. I'll read a little bit about him in a moment. But I think it's important to tell his story because so many of us identify with him. His name is Thomas. Thomas didn't actually see Jesus on Sunday morning or even Sunday night. It would be a week before he had an encounter with him. Now, often you hear the phrase, doubting Thomas. I think Thomas actually gets a bad rap. To be fair, what he was asked to believe is that someone rose from the dead. You know, that's, a lot of people have struggled with that one. On Sunday, most of Jesus' disciples had gathered in a locked room on Sunday evening. Thomas was missing. But the others, when they saw Jesus and told Thomas about it, he said, listen, I, I, I'm not sure I believe that. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Thomas was a skeptic. Now, I've talked about doubt here before. Some are critical of doubters. They say, just believe. But if you struggle with doubt, you know it's not that simple. Cynics often say, or critics, excuse me, often say that doubt is bad, but I think they're wrong. Doubt is normal. Sometimes people have an easier time or a harder time believing. That's okay. I don't believe doubt is the opposite of faith. In fact, I think doubt can be an important part of helping us clarify and deepen faith. And that's exactly what happens with Thomas. A week after Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared once again to the disciples, and this time Thomas was there. Jesus approached him when he came into the room, and he said, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. I don't know if you've noticed here how patient Jesus is with Thomas. 
doesn't criticize him. He just invites him to touch and satisfy his need for evidence. And interestingly, Thomas doesn't feel the need to, to even do any touching at all. Seeing Jesus is enough. Thomas not only became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, but he makes this belief personal when he says, my Lord and my God. The third person I want to point out is actually the first person who saw Jesus. That's Mary. Mary Magdalene, you probably have heard about, although much of what you may have heard is false. She was not, as Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code, the wife of Jesus and the mother of his children. She also wasn't a prostitute. Luke tells us, though, that Mary had had seven demons driven out of her, and from that point on, she was eternally grateful to Jesus. She was there at his trial, at his crucifixion. She watched him die. She saw them place him in the tomb. And so on sunset on Friday, Mary went home heartbroken. For the next 36 hours, she was filled with unbridled grief. That is, until she went to the tomb early on Sunday morning. She may have gone as early as 3 a.m., sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. She carried spices and other things to prepare Jesus' body for burial. But when she arrived, she was surprised first to see the stone rolled away and then to look in the tomb and see that it was empty. Now, I should mention here that critics often say that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. They propose things like perhaps Mary got the wrong tomb or Jesus really didn't die. He you know, he may have been crucified, but uh, he swooned and they thought he was dead, so they put him in a tomb and he revived in the cool, damp air. Or they say, maybe because of Jesus' own predictions about his resurrection, maybe the disciples decided to keep things going and they stole the body. Let me first say that Mary didn't go to the wrong tomb. She'd just been there 36 hours before. And also that Jesus died. The Romans were really good at crucifixion. They didn't get that wrong. Mary went that morning not to prepare Jesus' body for burial, not to bring him a change of clothes. And the idea about the stolen body, well, as Devin's read to us already from 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after he rose from the dead. And, John, and Paul says many of them are still alive. They were at the time Paul was writing, and he said, go find them. Basically, go hear their stories for yourself. Plus, there's really no way that those remaining disciples would have agreed to perpetrate a lie. Tradition tells us that 10 of the 11 remaining disciples would die violent deaths for their faith. So who would die for a hoax? As Blaise Pascal once said, I believe in witnesses who get their throats slit. Back to Mary. First she was confused, then she cried, and the tragedy of his death was compounded by the indignity of his missing body. When the angel asked her why she was crying, she said, because they've taken my Lord away. And then she turned and saw a man standing there. She didn't recognize him at first, but he said to her, Mary, and she cried out, Rabboni. That has to be really the best moment in this story. We started today talking about guilt, collective and individual, and the point here isn't to rub your noses in it, but to acknowledge honestly what we know is true, and that is we're not all that we ought to be. Forgiveness is central to the Christian faith. The fundamental truth is that sin creates a burden or a debt that needs to be paid. Can't be dismissed. But the good news is that on the cross, Jesus paid payment for human sin. And by faith and his resurrection, forgiveness is available to all. At our Good Friday service just a couple of days ago, we read the last words Jesus said as he hung on the cross. It is finished, is what John records in John 19. That's actually one word in the language the New Testament was written in, in Greek. 
And it's a word that was also used in the culture in commerce. Whenever a debt was paid, someone would write the same word. It's finished. It's paid. Paid in full. And that's what Jesus has done for us. The resurrected Jesus brings us something that we can get nowhere else, and that's freedom from guilt and shame, deliverance from the regret and remorse that we never thought we could get rid of, and the hope that wipes away the discouragement and despair that we feel about the wrongs we cannot make right. On Easter Sunday evening, Jesus' disciples were gathered in a locked room, and suddenly Jesus appeared among them, and after they'd recovered from the shock, he said simply, peace be with you. In the days, weeks, months, and years that followed, Jesus' disciples will tell everyone about the overwhelming, inexpressible joy that flooded into their hearts when Jesus said these words. Now, like the friend I quoted at the beginning, we do have a propensity to mess things up. And it's not just that we do some bad stuff now. We do it in the future as well, undoubtedly. But what we know is that through what Jesus did on the cross... And what he confirmed in the resurrection, that he offers us grace. And grace is forgiveness that can't be earned. So what does it feel like to be forgiven? Some have described it as a sudden sensation of relief. The knowledge that there is no price that we need to pay. The relief that comes by knowing that we don't need to struggle anymore to take care of the debt on our own. Instead, it comes by putting our faith in Jesus and trust in his resurrection as the one who can cleanse us from whatever it is we've done. But that's describing it in the abstract. What does it look like in a real life? A number of years ago, I got a phone call from a woman I'd never met. Her name was Sue, and she told me that her brother Jerry had just died after a long illness, and that Mark, a mutual friend of ours, had recommended me for the funeral. I've done this before, officiated at funerals for someone I've not met. And while it's easier to do a service for someone you've known, um, I often enjoy and am moved by the stories that I hear about people's lives. But Jerry's story was particularly unusual and memorable. The facts of his life were that he was an engineer, he loved the outdoors, he had a cabin on Pelican Lake. His family knew him as kind and thoughtful, but there was more to Jerry's story. In fact, as I heard it, I realized that there was a part of his story that I couldn't tell that someone else needed to tell that story. And it turned out it was my friend Mark. Mark is a surgeon, and Sue is one of his nurses. And not long before Jerry died, he shared with his sister the guilt that he felt for all the mistakes he'd made in his life, the people he'd hurt and the ways he'd let others down. Sue didn't quite know what to do, so she asked Mark, the surgeon, if he'd talk to Jerry. And so he did for three hours. Jerry told Mark about his regrets and the weight that he felt like he was carrying around that he couldn't get rid of. And Mark told Jerry about Jesus. He told him about his life of love and wisdom and service. He told Jerry about Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And he told him about the resurrection, the very thing that makes it possible for each one of us to find forgiveness from the guilt and shame and regret and remorse that we carry around. Eventually, Jerry said that he understood. And he said, will you pray for me? So Mark prayed. And at the end of the prayer, Jerry, nearing the end of his life, collapsed back into his pillow and said, ah, to be forgiven. A few days later, Jerry died. And Sue told me that in his last days, he was a different man. She said he'd always been kind, but now he was full of a peace and hope that he'd never had before. Ah, to be forgiven. Isn't that the cry of our hearts as well? 
John ends his description of this resurrection with an editorial comment that he writes at the very end of chapter 20 in John. He says, I write these things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Peter came to that first Easter morning racked with guilt and left believing that in Jesus he'd found forgiveness. Thomas came plagued by doubt, but in seeing the risen Christ, he found faith. And Mary came full of grief, only to hear Jesus say her name and find joy. So how can we respond to Jesus? Well, the bad news part is that we need to acknowledge our desperate need for forgiveness. But the good news is that by trusting in Jesus, we can find healing and life. Here at City Church, we often refer to faith as a journey. But it's a journey that has a destination. A destination of finding forgiveness and life in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's the challenge. If you've never made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ, consider doing so today because our purpose is exactly the same as that of John's when he wrote in his biography of Jesus that I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we live in a mixed up, messed up world, and we're sinful, broken people. We're more sinful than we'd like to admit, but what we also know is that on the cross, your son Jesus showed us that we're more loved and cherished than we ever dared to hope. We are aware that your son Jesus lived the life that we know we ought to have lived, that he died the death that we deserved, and that it is through his resurrection and only through his resurrection that we can experience the forgiveness in life we so deeply desire. Father, I pray for those here today, especially, who are considering this decision for the very first time. May they have the clarity of thought to make an informed decision and the faith they need to take this important step. We pray this all in the name of your risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.